So, Eric, um, you know, I'm a we're we're D and D players. Yes, we are. I've been a D and D player for a good chunk of my life, most of my life at this point. Likewise, one of, one of the other great beginning RPGs, the beginning of the RPG movement, if you will, was the Call of Cthulhu. Indeed, I've never actually gotten to play it. Nor have I. Not once. I own a copy of one of the fifth edition or something like that. But I was found myself fascinated with this Cthulhu mythos. And, you know me, I'm a monster guy. Everything in the Cthulhu mythos is some sort of monster in one way, shape, or form. Monsters, yep. And it's the, the game itself is all about investigating these stories, these tales, these, you know, cults and, and whatnot. And at the center of all that is Cthulhu himself. Absolutely. The big guy. And we may have touched a little bit on Cthulhu here and there, but we wanted to, to take a moment tonight and talk about H.P. Lovecraft's most memorable creation, the great old one himself, that maddening fiend, that creature that sleeps beneath the waves just waiting until the stars are right, Cthulhu. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded we become, fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, Eric, kind of want to change pace a little bit and just talk about a couple of things. Number one, I remember you texting me at work not that long ago about Stranger Things. Yes. We did an episode about the controversies of D&D, and then this new episode, this new season Boom. of Stranger Things comes it out. drops. And the very first episode is about the satanic panic, essentially. Absolutely. The whole episode sort of, the whole season sort of works around the idea that this one particular character is... Involved in some pretty heinous activity. Nailed it. Um, I saw a video just the other day equating him to one of the West Mef- Memphis Three, if you've ever heard of them. They were involved in a vampire the masquerade and apparently oh, got yes, accused yes. of killing okay. some folks. Yep. And then, just a couple weeks later, we do an episode about the Jin, And now, Miss Marvel, Ms. TV Marvel. show. Where does she Disney get her powers Plus. from? Yeah, she's a Jin. A Jin. So, I, I felt it was an, an interesting opportunity to just kind of not that we know anyone. Oh, I was going to say now, Bill, let me interrupt you here. This is proof, obviously, people, <laughs> that Bill and I, we have connections. We've got our finger on the pulse, right? Absolutely. Gotta, we know this stuff or, before it drops, yeah. <laughs> before anybody else leaks it. That's absolutely the case. I would love to take credit for having some sort of prescience <laughs> or something like that, but no, it's just crazy coincidental timing on just a couple of our episodes. We talk about a certain topic, and then that topic kind of leaps into the the pop culture the pop culture mainstream yeah. within days or a week afterwards so i i found that kind of interesting uh, also uh, an old friend of mine texted me just the other day he recently discovered our podcast well he actually got very upset with me that he didn't know i had a podcast oh you know we we kind of let this thing grow organically and i remember him texting me saying oh you're talking about chicks tracks now so he was <laughs> definitely listening to our D episode there you go there you go uh but we have had a few new listeners pop up so for those of you that have just discovered us, thank you, we, thank you, thank we you. We appreciate you listening. I know we've picked up some 
three or four new followers just on uh, Podbean, not counting the other outlets. I know my friends listening on Spotify. Well, it was actually last week um, we had one of your former school teachers come in the shop uh, looking for Bill. Straight story. Now, I can explain why he, he showed up. Uh, apparently, my, my daughter came home from school one day towards the last week of school there and said her substitute teacher knew me. And I found that kind of, I mean, I'm not knowable. Of a, I'm not super social, right? It turned out it was my middle school art teacher mm-hmm. who was one of my favorite teachers. And uh, shout out to Mr. Jacobs and Mr. J. But, yeah, apparently he, he got to talking to my daughter because he recognized the last name, obviously. And he knew my brother. So, obvi- you know, they they realized talking to each other that they were, you know, they were both talking about the same people. And I think my daughter referenced that, oh, he has a podcast now that he does with his friend. And, and that's what started down that road. And then, of course, your shop being associated with the so where closely we, with the where show. Where we do our recording, got our little recording studio here. Yeah, he he came in with his wife and lovely, lovely people had nothing but great things to say. Flattered me. I was embarrassed to be you know straight up honest, but yeah, apparently they had moved their daughter across country and spent like eight or ten hours just listening to us nonstop. How flattering! So thank all the listeners. Thank you all out there. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is sort of a labor of love. We're not making any money off this. I know we talk about our quote unquote paid advertiser in our ad. <laughs> Really, as far as paid advertising go, I think this you're providing the electric, and and we appreciate that. And and when our soundboard bit the dust, we actually went out and bought a new soundboard and some equipment just so we could keep doing what we love to do. <laughs> so to get on topic, we're going to talk about the cosmic entity known as Cthulhu. Cthulhu. To understand Cthulhu and to understand those stories and the entire mythos that surrounds the great old one known as Cthulhu. I think we got to talk about H.P. Lovecraft himself, the man who created Cthulhu, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. If you've read any of his work, you'll you'll know that a lot of it centers in the New England states. But now, Bill, how do you pronounce the name of the Great Old One? Now, I believe I'm I'm going to be breathy. By the way, I'm sorry. I have uh, seasonal allergies. He's got allergies. I'm going to sound weird on the next couple episodes. I believe Lovecraft himself pronounced it Cthulhu. Or Cthulhu, uh, if you look at the spelling, C-T-H-U-L-H-U, to pronounce it the way he pronounced it, I think you would need some apostrophes in there, which... Uh, I've heard it as Clulu. I've as seen well. that. Um, yeah, As you said, Cthulhu, and then Cthulhu. I think as we sit here today, we're going to go with Cthulhu. That seems to be... That's the way I've the pronounced pop culture. it. Yeah, right, the, wrong, or indifferent. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way I've always heard it. To be honest, I, I've heard other pronunciations, but usually those other pronunciations involve other spellings. Uh, for example, the the Metallica song, I think, spells it with a K, so mm-hmm. it's Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Cthulhu. So, but it is an alien name and an alien dialect and an alien tongue, so... so maybe we shouldn't be able to pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. That maybe maybe the human brain is not meant to comprehend the the name Cthulhu. Maybe we're not supposed to say his real name because it gives him more power. Yeah. <laughs> well, we talk about that kind of concept quite a bit on our show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, just to break it down in its simplest form, H.P. Lovecraft was an American author of weird science, fantasy, and horror fiction. Uh, and most of his work was, was published in the early 1900s, I think between 19, the mid-1905 region, sort of, until about 1920s. 
late 1920s. He was never able to support himself as a writer, however. And I believe you got into the history of Lovecraft a little more than I did. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, a lot of people consider him literally the father of cosmic horror. He kind of created that genre. Now, you might despise and hate the man uh, because of his prejudice and racism. Not too long ago, I had a friend approach me, and he asked me, okay, this whole Cthulhu mythos thing, I know you're into it. Where do you start? And I told him. It's a good question. You, you start with Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I did give him a disclaimer. I said, understand that Lovecraft was a product of his environment, a product of his time, the 1920s. We weren't exactly, culturally, we let's be honest, it's a little rough now, but back then we, we were, were a little savages. more open with, with our racism. So I said, understand that, that some of the the language that he's going to use is not appropriate. Some of the opinions are not appropriate for the time. But what is it? There's a big movie studio that just recently went with a movement, I think, universal or something that they're not going to edit older movies just because the the content is not appropriate for now these were these stories came out of the 1920s there's a certain amount of racism a certain amount of there there's obviously topics that are not appropriate in today's environment but you had it been written today it would not be yeah. on the shelf and and he agreed with me once he started reading some of it he's like man that guy was you know there's definitely some some racist stuff in there and we you know i don't condone that in any way shape or form but I do think if you're going to start with the Cthulhu Mythos, you start at the beginning, and that's Lovecraft and his works. Well said, and I will take that a step further. And we had a big discussion in here last night, actually, and it was like, you know, if we erase history, we are condoning ourselves to repeat the same mistakes. And while obviously these aren't historical documents, but it was a product of its time. Yeah, it's, it's a reflection of the time and, and the environment. Thank God we have at least made a few steps forward. Yeah. Uh, we're still not there yet, but I, I much was, better than then. Like I told you just moments ago, I think most people are, are, are past that. But there's a certain subsection of our culture that, that definitely isn't. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be off topic. But you have the people that watch the boys series on Amazon. Oh, yeah. And they don't see where, like, Homelander is the bad guy. You know, they're yeah. like, oh, no, he's perfectly justified the things he's doing. <clears throat> no. Uh, it was a Blue Falcon who was clearly racist and profiling black people. And they're like, no, he was doing the right thing. No. No, that's that's not okay. The The show is sort of pointing a finger at a certain group and saying, these people are the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, whether you agree or not with his prejudice and racism, I don't think anybody should be able to dispute the influence this man had on horror, fantasy, and science fiction. He was born August 20th, 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. He died uh, March 15th, 1937. His parents were aristocratic and wealthy. His father was actually a very successful businessman. However, he had an affliction of syphilis, which was a bit more than the family could deal with on more than one occasion. Both father and mother were institutionalized. Uh, His father in 1893, while uh, young Lovecraft was merely three years old. Uh, This was due to his uh, syphilis that he had. And later, his mother went in to be institutionalized in 1919. However, after his father's death, a short time after being uh, institutionalized, he passed away. He would go on to live with his mother. And his mother attempted to guard and protect her son by moving back in with her father, uh, H.P.'s grandfather. Now, he was a wealthy and somewhat eccentric old man by all means and accord. His name was Whipple Van Buren Phillips. He took a fancy to his grandson and kind of opened up 
with that family member where he was definitely not open to a lot of people. Uh, and that is where he got his knack of storytelling, uh, including uh, his grandfather would be knelt down next to his bed at night sharing ghost stories and the first glimpses of horror. And this is not the first time we've talked about this, especially during that time frame. It's like, hey, we're going to give you a nice little bedtime story yeah, about the most creepiest, traumatic. traumatic, horrific stuff that we can dream up. But well, it's, it's uh, you know, the... It's one of those old Christmas songs talks about telling ghost stories. That was a tradition. That, yeah, it, it was definitely. literally to try to scare people all the time for no reason. I mean, and and I'm just going to say this: maybe that was definitely a good way to keep young children in check. You know, hey, the ghost is going to crawl out from underneath your bed. You know, we always hear these, and there was a ghost in the closet and a ghost under the bed. <laughs> we were they were programming those young children at that age. But but regardless, HP he was he was traumatized by the absence that void. Uh, the loss of his father at such a young age. And he lived a reclusive life with reoccurring nightmares of what he described as the faceless ones. And this is a reference that comes up in several of his novels. That's interesting because there's a monster in World of Warcraft called the Faceless One. Mm. And it, it very looks very much like a Cthulhu-type creature. So there's kind of... Well, he would say, he would tell his mother and his grandfather that you know he would just wake up in night sweat terrors. And he kept referring it to as the, the faceless ones gathering around my bed, never touching or harming him, but would be like that creepiness that you wake up in a movie and you, and you open your eyes and there's like three or four of these faceless, skewed-looking, shadow-esque figures just staring at you as you're, as you're lying there in bed. Now, try as they may to try to help the young child, his, his mother and grandfather, Whipple, did what they could to help the depressed young boy to become a young man. During this time, H.P. Lovecraft took a shine to authors like Edgar Allan Poe and read and reread anything he could get his hands on of science fiction publications. Now, I, I do recommend Poe, of course. We've talked about it before. I'm a fan of classic horror literature, Dracula, Frankenstein. Oh, absolutely. Me too, me so too. Poe Poe and Lovecraft are definitely right there at the, the top of the list for me. It was horror before horror was what we call horror. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, you read Poe or, or Lovecraft, and they're not really frightening in the way that yeah, the horror is today. It's not blood cult classic stuff. Some it's, of these, yeah, they're like slow burn suspense kind of. They're, they're not the blood gore fest that you're used to. But sometimes, I mean, I... I find sort of that tactic to be the most effective. But, again, I'm also into big giant monsters terrorizing people, and and Lovecraft was definitely a monster guy. Absolutely. Well, he first actually began to dabble and experiment with writing short stories at this young tender age during this time frame living with his grandfather. As things began to finally settle down for H.P. Lovecraft, uh, his world, unfortunately, would once again be turned upside down with the death of his beloved grandfather, Whipple Van Buren, which was in 1904. But things just got worse from there. H.P. Lovecraft and his mother quickly came to the realization that grandfather's fortune had been mishandled and they physically were evicted from his own estate, their family estate, and it was foreclosed upon for debt. The mother and son found themselves nearly living on the street in poverty. Luckily, they were, through the help of a friend, to able to secure a tiny, run-down, I, I heard it described as a one-bedroom apartment, uh, a far cry from the lavish lifestyles that they had both become accustomed to. 
Now, keep in mind, all of this was when Lovecraft was himself at the mere age of, I believe, like 13, 14, maybe 14 years. Now, this added more conflict to Lovecraft's already, you know, turned upside down life. The conflict between him and his mother really seemed to come out. She became hostile, dealing with, you know, the pressures of the world, trying to support her son, the loss of her own father, obviously the loss of her husband years before. And H.P. Lovecraft found himself struggling with any form of social freedom. He would lock himself away uh, in the in the one-bedroom closet of their apartment, and his mother would just be on the other side of the door, beating on it and going through what we would describe now as dementia or possibly Alzheimer's. He did, however, somehow manage to find the silver lining, if you will, in this. While he was locked up in that closet or the bedroom, he had hours and hours of freedom to read books. And this is where he found his escape. Where he had hoped to experiment with his, with his writings and continuing writings, he just now fully embraced and fell into the comfort zone that other authors and books provided for him. Now, he did go on in 1917, and he wrote a very short story, Dagon, I believe was the name of it. He called it The Untamed Imagination, and he began to get out a little bit, I think, to try to separate him and his mother. Again, his mother, starting with dementia and Alzheimer's, turned very hateful against him, would strike him. He was just trying to find any type of comfort whatsoever. In 1919, his mother actually had a psychological break that she never fully recovered from and later passed away a few years uh, in 1921 of complications of that. Now, at this point in time, he could not support himself. As Bill said, you know, as many authors, unfortunately, their writings would not support them. And ironically, the money wouldn't come in until well after their death. Yeah, especially back at this point in time. And even really, I mean, it progresses quite a ways. If you go to, to L. Ron Hubbard, there's an interview with him, you know, you know, a famous interview where somebody asked him how much money he makes writing science fiction. And he, he you know, <laughs> supposedly he tells this guy, you can't make money writing science fiction. He goes, now, if you could write, you could start your own religion and write a, a that book, you know, that's where the money's at. That's where at. the money's at. And, go and, figure. you know, long story short, Scientology. Scientology, bing. So he did the only thing he could think of, and that was, again, to reach out to any family he could find. Well, he had two aunts who were not especially a good influence on him. However, it was due to this that uh, he ended up having to move in with them due to dire consequences. And another kind of silver lining was he met the love of his life at first sight. Uh, she was a Russian Jew, seven years older than him, and her name was Sonia Green. Now, some might be surprised if, you know, we, we touched upon his prejudice and racism that uh, Lovecraft's views, especially on Jews, but it, it seemed to work. And on March of 1924, the, the two married. Now, it was during uh, this time after they married that the young couple decided, obviously, we're not going to stay here with the aunties uh, because they had different beliefs and, and different practices. And again, it, it wasn't necessarily a healthy, healthy lifestyle for them. So they moved to New York. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this time frame in particular. Did H.P. Lovecraft really find true love? It is believed by most not. It was more speculated that while they may have been in love with one another, it wasn't of a romantic or sexual nature. It was more of convenience and business opportunities. 
Sonia Green, his wife, was a successful businesswoman herself. She owned a very lucrative hat business. Uh, She also knew many people and had many connections in the writing field herself. She seemed to understand H.P. Lovecraft's, shall we call it, weirdness. Uh, And in turn, he, I think, really needed somebody to love him, to care for him. And so she didn't really seem to have that either. So it was a business relationship more than likely, uh, but it, it seemed to work on multiple levels. Now, during this stay in New York, uh, he really found his foothold, and he actually writes about that himself, that he was introduced to Weird Tales. Now, this is a sci-fi publication that's been around for many, many years, uh, which would become his largest publisher for his works. However, as a struggling author, uh, New York was not kind to him, just like it is today. It's very costly to live there, and they were basically living off of Sonia's hat business. But that did allow them to live a comfortable life, with Lovecraft being able to continue to publish his little short stories, and everybody seemed happy, and it seemed like maybe he had found his niche in the world. But again, as it seemed to be with Lovecraft's entire life, tragedy would strike, and Sonia, this time his wife, would become deathly ill. To a point, she lost her hat business. Uh, During this time frame, H.P. Lovecraft rejected several offers from writing jobs uh, that he had already, it sounded like, even committed to and just didn't follow through with. Now, that's an absolute no-no in business. So that kind of scarred him and give a lot of publishers kind of a, a bad vibe about him. But to his point, you know, how can I be writing short stories? My wife is possibly dying. I need to be by her side. She's always been by my side. So I get that. I can understand that. I can respect that. Now, they did find themselves, again, living in near poverty conditions, but this time in New York. And again, as I talked about, New York's not a cheap place to live, folks. So Sonia did seem to get a little bit better and... I personally didn't find exactly what it was that plagued her, but she she must have got better in a period of about a year or two to the point where, you know, seven years older, his age, she said, I, we've got to do something. You know, we are, we're going to die on the streets. So she started looking for employment and found employment in Cleveland, Ohio. So she leaves her husband, H.P. Lovecraft, goes to Cleveland, Ohio, here the once owner of a very esteemed hat business now working for someone else, you know, working her way up the ranks all over again. And HP Lovecraft was able to kind of stay in the New York area. I'm assuming she's sending money back and everything. They had downgraded to a very small apartment, but he moved to an area uh, known as the red hook district. And now Bill and I talked a little bit before the podcast. I personally believe this is where that whole racist aspect was just dialed up to maximum he becomes so vulgar so full of hatred that in his own writings i mean he's declaring himself a racist i mean he is using terminology and words which you know we will not use on this podcast but he said in the red hook district he was surrounded by foreigners And he grew very angry that none of them could speak his language and the language of the land. And it was gibberish and, you know, just just that type of of demeanor about himself. But he found himself that didn't help his writing career any. He'd already kind of got some black eyes. 
spiraling out of control, openly stating his hatred of Jews and blacks. However, being married to a Jew, and it was totally uncalled for and unaccepted. But where I'm going with this is he made that even worse, and he was unable to get any jobs. And once again, went back to auntie's house because he was going to be homeless. Now, the aunties, being the good aunts that they are and family-loving people, they said, sure, we'll take you back on one condition. You don't bring Sonia, your wife. <laughs> so, obviously, putting this barrier between them. Now, after he returned to the Rhode Island area and those New England states that all of his books seem to be kind of be focused around in the background, he wrote some of his best-known works, probably in this time of absolute dire misery. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu. At the Mountains of Madness, The Shadows Over Innsmouth, uh, The Shadow Out of Time. I mean, okay, I've read almost all of these, or I've read all of those, actually. Uh, At the Mountains of Madness is is difficult to read, but it is very good. And I know that at one point in time, Guillermo del Toro was wanting to make a movie out of it, which I have, uh, well, I listened to another podcast where they actually presented the, the script. That would have been a fantastic movie. It would have had elements of The Thing and Alien and and all kinds of... Oh, nice. It would have been a crazy movie. Now, I'm going to be honest here, and and Bill, you may walk out the door. (laughs) I have never read one of H.P. Lovecraft's books. Well, Eric, not everyone can be as cultured as I am. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Now, owning a comic and collectible shop, I'm surrounded by it. I was going to say, I know you have works of Lovecraftian fiction in I the do. store. And I, I mean, I love the artwork. I've went through and I've read portions. But to say I have literally went in, you know, novel cover to cover, I, I have it. So a lot of this was, was kind of new to me. And it was very intriguing and interesting. But again, some of these best works was written during this time frame in the New England-esque areas. At the roots of Lovecraft's writing, it became known as cosmicism yes well it, I, I guess we're gonna this is another place where we argue on pronunciation i would probably say cosmicism cosmicism okay. i think they both work I, I agree i was just actually i was looking at that part in my notes here and, and how arguing am how am i gonna it? say <laughs> but yeah uh cosmicism simply presented that humanity was an insignificant part of the the cosmos as a whole uh, all of existence was fleeting and and, and fragile and and everything was meaningless, and all of humanity could just be wiped away in a second. And really, you know, knowing what we know about science and not, crazy things, not like so yes, true. we don't need giant alien cosmic entities to wipe us out. We could simply have a supernova star or whatever, a gamma burst, whatever they call or it. Or one of our own creations of nuclear bombs, and we could push the button and kill ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, life is fragile. It could be wiped away in, a, in an instant, like you said. Well... I'll just kind of end there with the history that, you know, he continued writing various different degrees of success until his death in 1937, where he died of uh, intestinal cancer at the actual, I think, young age of 47 years. That's yeah, I guess really it's not unthinkable that if he'd not gotten cancer, he could have lived into our lifetime. So 37 is not really that i mean you you add another 40 years on there well he was 47 died in 1937 yeah but i would say you add another yeah. 40 years 77 yeah you know, lovecraft could have lived quite a long life some some things about lovecraft i know you touched on some things politically he believed that the ruling class would, would should feel obligated to take care of of the people beneath them 
And then, of course, the Great Depression happens, and he immediately realizes the ruling class doesn't care about those beneath them. Yeah. Whatever it takes to save their skins and let the rest of us hang. He was an atheist, although his parents were both Protestant. He was raised in a Protestant home until, obviously, you know, his mother and her mental issues. And, and, and again, all of his works, well, not all of his works, but most of his works sort of laid the groundwork for this, what we call the Cthulhu mythos. And and he himself built upon it. He would each story sort of tied into one another. You said that he had a story called Dagon, and then in Shadow Shadows Over Innsmouth, uh, Dagon is a central figure in that story. And then Dagon was simply a priest of Cthulhu, and, and you know it all, all comes connects. together. And and then a lot many of his contemporaries, I believe, it was Robert Block, uh, Ramsey Campbell, a lot of a lot of writers back then that were considered his contemporaries. He was very, you know, like this, this is, we should all be building this together. It was a shared universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely kind of like Gary Gygax did with Dungeons and Dragons. You know, here's what I'm presenting, but take it and do with what you will, you know, kind of thing. This is not a rules kind of thing. It's just kind of a guideline. Have fun with it. That's sort of, I mean, if you, uh, the, the Cthulhu mythos universe is still being added onto today. I mean, Stephen King has volumes that, that reference cthulhu-esque things and, and specific entities and locations from the lovecraft works brian lumley who may be not familiar with on the level of king but he's very very well prolific in british horror author uh wrote necroscope and other things but his a lot of his he loves he writes just volumes of lovecraftian fiction so now one thing that i thought was really strange and again i'm, I'm showing my my maybe my lovecraft ignorance here but Really, there was only one book, The Call of Cthulhu, that he wrote in 1928 that's really all about yes. Cthulhu. The Cthulhu might be kind of in the background of some other stories and stuff, but wow, you talk about a character that just kind of like stole the show and ran well, off. I, I honestly, mean, I've read uh, Call of Cthulhu uh, two or three times at this point. Uh, for what it is and for the writing style of the time, it's actually pretty well written in my opinion. Uh, it does get a little wordy at times, but I think that is sort of a, a trap that a lot of authors fell into back in those days. And maybe that's just me comparing it to, you know, a lot of the modern stuff you read. Let's admit, you know, movies and books and all that, they've changed over the years and the pacing and, and such. Right. But as far as presenting the picture and the experience of what it was like, it's it's really not not a bad story at all. I Like I said, I consider it a very good story. I've, I've read it a couple of times. But like you said, it's the only story where Cthulhu is the main fixture the main character or the main antagonist or however you want to phrase it a lot of the other works reference cthulhu or they reference things related to cthulhu but the cthulhu mythos expanded way beyond cthulhu and and really if if you get into it you learn that cthulhu himself is simply or itself however you want to phrase it but cthulhu itself is simply a priest for greater powers yeah of azathoth and yogshothoth and and his parents and grandparents. And, yeah, it actually, it, that kind of shocked me. Those meant like deities, gods. Yes. But Cthulhu himself was a priest. He wasn't given the title of a deity or a god. Well, they they do call him a great old one, but I guess the strongest servitors of these elder gods that, were to me, called kind of old like ones. The race almost yeah. kind of, you know, the great old ones. Now, in that Cthulhu story, uh, and you may touch on this, the there was a Norwegian sailor, I believe his name was Johansson, and he and his crew came face to face with Cthulhu, the Great One, uh, who had been submerged in his lair of the depths. And, and yeah. maybe I'm maybe I'm not going to pronounce no, this right. I'll, I'll cover some early of this. Early or something. 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna summarize the story here. Obviously, if you want to read the story, it's out there to be read. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, any summary I give you is not gonna do justice to the story. <laughs> so go to the source. Go to the source. So Cthulhu himself. He first appeared in the story The Call of Cthulhu, published in Weird Tales magazine in 1928. So we talked about it. You know, he's considered a, a great old one. It's it's this gigantic entity that worshipped by cultists around the world. Uh, in the story, he actually, one of the investigators is pursuing the story of Cthulhu, goes to New Orleans and goes into the swamps and finds a, a cult, you know, worshiping an idol out in the, the swamps. And it's just very voodooistic. Yeah. It, I mean, the story itself sort of spans the world. You talked about the Norwegian fishermen and, and stuff like that. Now, to describe Cthulhu, I mean, essentially, we're trying to describe the undescribable at this point in time. And a lot of Lovecraftian stuff is that way. We're trying to describe something you're really not supposed to understand. But the way he's described, he appears he appears in shape. And, and this is actually a description from, from some of Lovecraft's own words. Uh, with the shape of an octopus, a dragon, a hideous humanoid form. Uh, the, all descriptions do agree. He has a pulpy, tentacled head grotesque scaly body with rudimentary wings prodigious claws on hind and four feet uh it is said that cthulhu is so terrible to behold as a matter of fact that simply seeing him will shatter a sane mind just beholding, beholding cthulhu drives you crazy and in, in, in the story itself it's a boat full of, of of men that stumble across the part of the sunken city and we're gonna argue pronunciations here i say relay relay well, that may be wrong who knows but some of the men see Cthulhu and just throw themselves off the boat. You know, they're just like, this This can't exist. It just breaks their mind. In game terms, seeing Cthulhu does 1d100 sanity damage. Ouch. You, sanity only goes to 100. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in the Call of Cthulhu RPG, of course. Now, of course, Cthulhu is, is said to be sleeping in the sunken city of Relay somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. This city was built measureless time ago. Uh, it existed before man, before whatever. Back in the early days when Earth was just a basically a cooling ball of magma, they say. You know, uh, that Relay has been there longer than anyone can imagine. Now, it also mentions like it was almost built out of like green stones. I heard a reference of emerald or something. Uh, I know it, it references a, a green stone uh, in Lovecraft's words. Relay was built by the vast, loathsome shapes that seeped down from the stars. Again, you get into these big cosmic horror type things. Uh, the city itself was built in, in unknowable angles. Simply seeing the structures of Relay would unsettle the human mind because none of it made sense. The angles you might have... I don't. Again, this is. It's supposed to be we're, difficult to we're explain. Trying to wrap our little minds you, around. You could have all a hundred twenty degree thing wedged into a ninety degree thing, and you know it would make sense in relay, but your mind just those things don't work together. Yeah. It's like the weird this illusion. Be yeah, the weird illusion of the chair with four legs and none of the legs are. You know, it's just you look at it, and you you understand something's wrong, but you just can't express what it is. Now, Cthulhu is of course laid sleeping for untold aeons, and this is where. That uh, very, very famous couplet comes from in Call of Cthulhu. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange aeons, even death may die. And there's a variation of that in the Call of Cthulhu song, or, or a song. Uh, I don't believe it's Call of Cthulhu. It's a different one by Metallica. Arguably, I would say this is right up there with, you know, one ring to rule them all as far as. Yeah, yeah. Lord of the like Rings. Every, you've, you've heard a version of this, even if you're not a, a Lovecraft fan. Now, when the stars align just right. 
And, and who knows what that alignment is. I think we had something like that just a we week had, ago. Yeah, alignment so. like all the planets. Yeah. When the stars align just right, Dread Cthulhu will awaken and reclaim dominion over this Earth. So, you said in the story, briefly summarize. Like I said, I, I would strongly encourage you to read the story to really understand it. But there's this investigator who starts investigating this Cthulhu cult. And he finds... That at a certain point in time, Relay itself, due to an earthquake, has pushed part of its... Relay has been pushed partially out of the ocean. And a fishing vessel encounters Relay. They encounter Cthulhu. And while Cthulhu is briefly above the surface of the ocean, he's actually... Like I said, seeing Cthulhu could drive you insane. Cthulhu, his mere existence, actually affects those who have already lost their sanity. And people in mental wards across the world... Uh, they, they either have these horrific nightmares, they create horrific works of art, uh, they move themselves to violence and lash out and attack people, because just simply his existence in the world is that powerful that when he manifests in physical form, he, shat- he, shatters, he, he shatters those already fragile psyches. You know. Now, also, isn't it kind of like one of the main forms of communication that he would visit you in your dreams, and that's how like maybe yes. the followers would would consult and talk with him and 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 again it's unknowable right like he communicates in a way it's not even language you just understand the message behind what's being put in your skull part of cthulhu's history is related in the necronomicon according to h.p lovecraft in universe and and i'm going to use some terminology here that might reflect a little poorly but was written by the mad arab abdul al-hazred now the book was originally entitled al-azif In Lovecraft's own words, it was an Arabic word that was defined as that nocturnal sound made by insects supposed to be the howling of demons. Now, you know, the the Necronomicon in in Lovecraft's universe was obviously a very powerful spellbook that contained a lot of arcade knowledge, a lot of things that no man was meant to know. And Abdul Hazred himself went mad in the process of writing the book and was eventually, according to lore, uh, murdered in a city street by an unseen entity that's basically ripped apart. Oh, wow. And even as he was writing the Necronomicon, he constantly references hearing, basically hearing the creatures at the door. They're coming to get him. Uh, you know, is, is he sane? Is he is he mad? You know, what's going on in, with this guy? And, of course, the Necronomicon, you know, there are multiple. There, there's the original written by Al Hazard himself. And then there are multiple copies. Copies claim, you know, possibly in the British Museum, the Biblioteca... National de France, the Widener Library of Harvard, the University of Buenos Aires, and the Library of the Miskatonic Universe of Arkham, Massachusetts. Only one of those is not real, of course, being the the Arkham uh, Miskatonic University in Arkham. And for those of you that want to know, uh, it, 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 you know, this is a shared universe. People have built upon it. Miskatonic University's uh, mascot is the Fighting Squid. So. It's very appropriate. <laughs> now you mentioned. That- and we talked about it a couple times actually in the podcast, you know, he, he presented this as like, yeah, I came up with this, but take this and do what you want. I, I think a lot of the, the mythos came even after HP Lovecraft, the writers like August Derla, Robert Block, Robert E. Howard, Charles Strauss, Neil Gaiman. I mean, the list goes on and on. You well, mentioned like Stephen King and, you know, some of the names you named there, you know, Neil Gaiman, obviously known for Sandman and, and whatnot. Robert E. Howard, um, Robert Conan. E. Howard's creator Conan. But yes, all of these writers, this would be like building a house, right? Lovecraft put down the foundation. Here's the basics. 
and then everybody's come in and they've added a room, let's say Winchester Mystery House style. Right. Some of it doesn't make sense. Some of it doesn't quite fit the original. They don't always work together. But yeah, like uh, the, the, there's a Stephen King story called Crouch End that absolutely references elements of the the mythos that he's added his own pieces to it. See, I think that is really cool. I mean, you know, in a, in a day and age where we live in, you know, plagiarism and copyright stuff is such a big deal. And, you know, obviously Lovecraft was way back there, but he's like, seriously, just do with this what you want, guys. And it's ironic you should mention that because at one point in time, they tried to include the Cthulhu mythos in Dungeons and Dragons. Mm, oh, yeah. The deities and demigods. And got, got sued down. and had to take it out, had to reissue the book. So if you ever find yourself with one of those old AD&D books that has the Cthulhu mythos in it, you got a gem. lucky. Yeah, you got a gem. And a lot of that Lovecraft stuff, a lot of people think it's in the public domain simply because it's so old, but I guess there's a Lovecraft estate or whatever. Uh, there's a publishing company that maintains the rights to Lovecraft stuff. Now, there are movies, of course, based on Lovecraft. There's actually a silent film that was made maybe 15 years ago, silent film, based on this that actually has some of the, I, I don't know, they tried to recapture the silent film era using some of the technology of today, and, and it's really kind of interesting. I've, so I've that sounds intriguing. I wasn't aware of this. And then, of course, you know, you have movies that, that talk about Cthulhu-type stuff. We had the mythos. series Lovecraft. Lovecraft not, Country. Not, yeah, Lovecraft Country, uh, not all that long ago. Based off of a book, which I read the book. I've seen a couple episodes of the show. And I think, and, and you can argue with me here, Lovecraft Country tries to tackle the horror of the times in a different way. Yes. They're not saying, you know, it's not only the monsters that are bad. I mean, it literally starts with the guy being harassed by a white cop in the yeah, South. True racist, political... We did get into that series. I will say the first couple episodes, like with many series, I thought was a little slow. But uh, my wife, Sarah, and I, we, we got into it and we watched all of it. And it got better and better and better. Now, again, I haven't seen the whole series, but I did read the book. I like the book quite a bit. And in Lovecraftian fiction, it doesn't center on Cthulhu. Like we said, Cthulhu is one entity that appears in a couple of stories. A lot of people think because it's called the Cthulhu mythos, it's all about Cthulhu, but it's not. There's so much more there. There's so many more creatures to talk about. There's so much more. There's an entire story in Lovecraft Country, which I don't know if it made it in the book, but it's simply about a device that allows them to travel to a different planet. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not. There's no very sci-fi. Yeah, it's a I very sci-fi type thing. He he combines so much in the in the Lovecraft the love his mythos again science fiction fantasy horror that you can have Lovecraftian stories. Conan himself, Conan himself is actually part of the mythos if you follow the references. I was just thinking, and this just literally came to me. But seriously, with the way that the whole mythos is done and the sci-fi, I could see Cthulhu making it to Star Trek. Or even Star Wars because of like jumping the planets and the galaxies and the cosmos, and it would make sense. Well, there, oddly enough, there 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 are science fiction works that reference Cthulhu in, in different ways. Some of the some of now I, I've I've read tons of, of collections. Usually Cthulhu works, Cthulhu mythos works are short story form. Yes, yes. But, I mean, as the little background story of some of, of this, I, I could definitely see, like, an episode of Star Trek, you know, going around this. And there are definitely episodes of Star Trek that would fit in a Cthulhu Mythos yeah. sort of framework. I mean, really, you, you could put so much into that. And, and, again, the Cthulhu Mythos is ever-expanding. If you reference anything from the Cthulhu Mythos anywhere, you technically add it to the Mythos. So, if you write a book, you, even if uh, I'm writing a book about werewolves. And I mentioned that at one point in time they they did the research on the Arkham 
you know, the the Miskatonic University Library. Well, now you've added that to There's the mythos. There's more to it. Yep. The story just builds and builds. It, it is a shared universe that is still out there, still being built upon. And like you said, in the days and times of people being like, that's my work and you can't. No, like Lovecraft encouraged that. He wanted people to build upon this. Now, again, people tried to codify it and different things. I believe one of the one of his contemporaries tried to do like an elemental thing and Cthulhu represented water. And this this old one represented this and the, you know things like. But it's best when it, it's honestly best when these things are sort of undefined. The mind is not meant to comprehend the things that that he was writing about. That's sort of the point of it. Simply seeing Cthulhu could drive a man insane. The mind was not meant to know these things. I got to ask Bill, and I'm going to beat a dead horse here again. Dungeons and Dragons. I'm sorry, it's a big part of my life. Why do you why do you think in the world where he wanted Cthulhu shared that they got into that whole thing where it was banned? Because after he had passed, someone else took over, and so Chaosium, of course, has the Call of Cthulhu RPG. Right. I think that might be part of it. They had already published so it's a an role RPG play form. game against a role play. Yeah, game. they uh, already had it. True now, competition. Let's advance that another 20, 30 years. And eventually, uh, after third edition Dungeons and Dragons came out, they published a D20 based Dungeons and Dragons game that was completely compatible with Dungeons and Dragons that was worked on with Chaosium and Wizards of the Coast together. Mommy and Daddy made up. I believe most of the work was done by Monty Cook, which if you're familiar with Dungeons and Dragons in, in the modern age, Monty Cook is sort of the driving force behind a lot of D&D. Um, but yeah, like I, I have played Call of Cthulhu in that form. I have played D&D Call of Cthulhu, but... Well, know. I mean, I know, you know, D&D, TSR at that time, uh, before Wizards of the Coast bottom, I had the problem, of course, with The Hobbit, you know, and the whole Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But that... That is like a known thing. It's it's almost like Disney. Don't touch Lord of the Rings, you know, or we're coming after you. But yeah, it was just kind of intriguing to think about, you know, here the creators like, please share this. And then it's like, oh, but not here. <laughs> sort of related to Disney and copyright. Did you know that Winnie the Pooh has gone into the public domain recently? I actually heard that. Yes. And there's a company working on a Winnie the Pooh horror, horror film. film. Sign the, me up. I saw the trailer for <laughs> I gotta it. Go it see is, that. Oh, man. Uh, and Mickey Mouse, the original iteration of Mickey Mouse, is actually slated to enter into public domain. Now, of course, Disney's smart enough to copyright every version of Mickey Mouse. Steamboat so, Willie and, yeah. and onward, yeah. So, now, Lovecraft created Cthulhu, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Cthulhu Absolutely. doesn't predate Lovecraft, no. does it? There's no real world. It can't right? be. It's fantasy. It's not so, real. Sarek, have you ever heard of the bloop? Why, yeah, I have, Bill. Let's pause here. I could probably pay, play the bloop sound. There was this recording, Eric. Um, it happened in 1997 by a deep underwater microphone array. And this sound was, it, it's, it's, this is going to sound weird, but it was a big sound. Like I, but it's, it's a big, huge in, sound. And at the time. It's a simple sound, but. Wow. Yeah. At the time, people <laughs> thought that it had to be created by something alive, an organic creature. And uh, this creature would have had to have been larger than any documented creature ever known. Now, using the triangulation out there in the Pacific Ocean, they were able to triangulate roughly 50 degrees south, 100 degrees west, a remote point in the South Pacific. Again, west, the Pacific. Yeah, west of the tip of South America. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot. It's pretty vague. But in the story, Call of Cthulhu, the coordinates for Relay are given. 
where the boat encounters the sunken city. This, the coordinates are 47 degrees south, 126 degrees west. What? 50 and 100, 47, 120, not far off. And let's say maybe this triangulation wasn't perfect. Maybe they were a little bit off. Or maybe the coordinates the boat gave were a little bit off. Either way, suspiciously close to one another. Now, modern interpretations of the sound claim that the bloop was actually an iceberg calving. If you don't know what that means, calving, I guess, maybe, depending how you want to phrase it, how you want to say it. Uh, But that's when a large piece of an iceberg splits off from the original iceberg and you know, goes into the water, which could definitely be a bloop sound. But the thing is, this noise was a prolonged noise. It wasn't like a woof. Well, and I would argue, I would think icebergs do that quite often. They should know what that sounds like. Well, yeah, we should have kind of a library reference of sounds here. So, okay, there's a little bit of weirdness for you. Now, the Necronomicon. I'm going to have to quote one of my favorite movies here. <laughs> uh, a tome bound in human flesh and inked in human blood. Uh, made popular by the Evil Dead and, and, and such. Good old Ash. Created by Lovecraft, one would argue, maybe. In the 1970s, a book claiming to be a translation of the original Necronomicon, the real Necronomicon, was published. Uh, I believe the, the author is the name Simon. They call it the Simon Necronomicon. And it has very little, if, if anything, in common with the Cthulhu myth- mythos as established by Lovecraft. This was actually based on Sumerian mythology. Now, did Al Hazred, you know, write? Was there, was there a real Necronomicon? I mean, this guy claims to have interpreted the original Necronomicon and published it. I, I have a copy of the Simon Necronomicon. <gasps> it does have an intro where it talks about the madness of the Mad Arab and, and, and him being plagued by, you know, spiritual All the voices entities. and whisperings and beatings on the door. It does. It has nothing to do with Cthulhu. I'll say that. This book saw publication as a trade paperback in 1980. It has never been out of print since. It has sold over 800,000 copies as of 2006. So I'm assuming there's even more since then. So, I mean, that book stays in print somehow, and there's not really much reason for it to stay in print. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, technically, Harvard does have multiple copies of the Necronomicon in its library. Oh, really? But that's because there's multiple books called the Necronomicon, including the Simon Necronomicon, and also another book called Necronomicon, The Wanderings of Al-Hazred by an author named Donald Tyson, which is directly inspired by the Call of Cthulhu and the origins of the Necronomicon in the Cthulhu mythos. mythos. But if you ask Harvard if they have a copy of the Necronomicon, they're going to say yes. There's that. Now, if you ever do manage to find Miskatonic University, I'd like to go there someday. (laughs) Make sure you get those coordinates. Yeah. Well, you might ask, you know, as we said, Cthulhu was really only in one book and, you know, whispers and background of some of the others. But why, why was he so popular? What made that creature so popular? And a couple things on the Internet as I went down and was trying to understand this, it actually made sense. Number one, the simple recognition. Artists have depicted so many various forms of Cthulhu through the years, but it's always that kind of green, gray-esque color, the octopus-style head, tentacled mouth, the wings, the red eyes often drilled into our mindset. You know, other characters that H.P. Lovecraft did, while Cthulhu is hard to explain, they're even harder. I mean, oh. it may just be gurgling was, bubbles with a mouth and yeah, teeth. Or, yeah, no, some of the creatures are definitely harder to explain. Yeah, I mean, and you try to do artist renditions. You try to do artist renditions of that, and it's just, it's not there, you know. But if you got this massive hulking beast with the tentacles around the mouth and wings, I mean, that's just, 
it's easier to draw and it's mesmerizing and we take that and embed it in our in our minds you know and secondly we as humans often fear the unknown hp lovecraft actually had a fear of deep water absolutely terrified him and ironically he wrote a lot about it yeah but a lot of us as humans they have this shared phobia they think about you know what lies beneath what could come up and snatch you know unsuspecting victims from under the water there are volumes of Lovecraftian fiction called the the weird shadows over ends with weirder shadows over in the weirdest, <laughs> and they a lot of them typically involve the ocean. Obviously, the 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 deep ones were fish people. They came out of the ocean. They worshipped Dagon, who was under the ocean. Dagon worshipped Cthulhu, who was under the ocean. And let me tell you from experience, not the best books to bring on a cruise. <laughs> You're sitting there. I can imagine right there in the tourist shop, yeah. right on the well, cruise ship. Well, I, I, when I when I went on my cruise, I actually I, I bring a book everywhere I go. Sure, uh, I brought that with me, and it was you know you read about these horrors that happen in, at sea. It'd be funny to like randomly leave these around on tables <laughs> and stuff. But but yeah, you you read these horrors that happen at sea while you were miles from land. And yeah, land not in yeah. sight. They, they'll definitely play with your head a little. Well, as we wrap up, it is ever present. Cthulhu is literally woven into our existence. Whether you want to acknowledge it or accept it or not, he is everywhere. From novels, movies, video games, board games, action figures, even to that cute little plush figure that you can put on your computer table. Cthulhu is watching you. Uh, with us having Ravensloft, you know, gaming shop, I have to confess, you know, role-playing games and such, the Call of Cthulhu, it, you know, it it is honored his legend and preserved kept him alive however you want to put a spin on it he's out there he's watching my last little plug i know we try not to be political 2024 cthulhu why vote for the lesser of two evils absolute thank you for listening all me yeah (laughs) see there we go Speaking Cthulhu. <laughs> so that's going at the end of the episode. That's it. That's a key. All right. So. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. 
we do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.